Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. Um, I pray your grace to share your word today, and I pray your word to come out clear, pierce, and um, bring growth, Lord. Thank you for this uh, four weeks of speaking about gripped, and uh, I just pray that you would bless today as we speak about being gripped in worth, and um, bring understanding, cast out distractions, all these thoughts in our minds that try to uh, get in the way from what you want to do in us. Glorify yourself through your word today. Um, speak through me. Remove me from the way and, and be glorified, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Together we say amen. amen. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask, ask you guys, if you can, there real quick. I guess just turn to Acts 20 for now. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts 20. That stuff gets tricky when you start talking fast. You know, I'm going to start asking you to turn to Ask 20 and stuff like that, and then it gets all crazy. But I will ask you to turn to Acts 20 and then just sit there for a moment because I might just jump around and give you some sort of introduction. I feel like about, this is crazy because I feel like maybe 90% of the message is an introduction leading to my real message, which ends on the last 10% of the message. So this is just God's grace to help me get through it. And and, um, I just want to get into this. Uh, This is gripped. This is our fourth fourth service, our fourth message within this title, gripped. And um, its title is Gripped in Worth, Gripped in Worth. And you could go ahead and write that. This, this, now, now, there's a passage, and I told you to turn to Acts 20 for a reason. And, um, and um, I'm going to take a break because there's a lot of people that listen to us, too, on our podcast. And you guys, I do want to remind you that in our church, we do give tithes and offering. Wow, I thought all my faithful brothers and sisters would give God some praise for that. <laughs> oh, wait, you're a church that collects tithes and offering? Of course. Number one, it's biblical, and number two, we need to live. Um, we need to keep meeting here. So we do forgive me for trying to rob your blessing, amen, and, and rob your faithfulness in giving. So I did not do that on purpose, obviously. So what we'll do is at the end of service, um, just remind me, say tithes, okay? So I, I want to make sure that we honor God with our tithes as well. I completely forgive me. Um, I, f- I completely forgot to collect your tithes and offering. But we do have the black box in the back. And for those listening on podcasts and for those that are here listening, you could give in that black box or you could also give like you've been giving through our app the give button forgive me for that we honor your giving and there's a whole message and a whole a whole thing i even wanted to share a whole verse on giving today but whatever it's good god has god has his way forgive me let's go back to acts 20 huh how did i start off god give me grace to share today all right so i told i told you to turn to acts 20 because there is a part of um in this passage in acts 20 that i read it about maybe two months ago and it, and it led me to start like i said this series called gripped i came across certain verses um, in this book of Acts, and, and it's where I got this topic from, and, and, and it's interesting because before we jump into it, let me give you a quick little summary of what's happening, especially, we, we've been talking a lot about Paul during Gripped, but especially in Paul's life, specifically this morning, as we get into this. You see, Paul now in Acts 20 is, we're, we're going to jump into his life here, and this is during his third and final journey. This is Paul's third and final journey. Now, this is interesting because whenever I look at Paul's third and final journey, I don't necessarily like to call it his final journey. I'd like to say it's Paul's third journey. 
The reason why I like to say it's Paul's third journey and not his final journey, because I do believe that his final journey is actually the one to Rome, which eventually he, he will die in Rome. He, eventually that will lead to his death. But that is his fourth journey because through the process or through the journey of going to Rome, a lot of ministry happened there and a lot of great things happened. So I have to consider that as part of his fourth journey, though it's not one of his missionary apostolic journeys that he had necessarily planned for. Are you with me? So, but we are in Acts 20, which is his third and what people call his final journey. And, and it's his final round, his final round of Paul traveling and visiting the churches. Very important, his final round. Obviously, if I'm saying it's his final round, what are we looking at? We're looking at Paul's what? End of his life. Okay, so it's his final round of visiting the churches. And he spent some time specifically in Ephesus. And, and we know that while he's in Ephesus, there is a very charismatic and very powerful man there. A very uh, rich man as well. There's a man there by the name of Demetrius. And he was a silversmith. And, and this man Demetrius had a profitable business. And, and he, was a, he was a great businessman. What he was known for was... He would make these shrines, and, and, and one, of the, one of the most popular works with his hands was a shrine that he would make for the Greek goddess named Diana. So all over Ephesus, this man's work was, 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 was visible. You would see it visible all over wherever you went. And it was his hands, it was his company that made these shrines. It was through his company and through his vision and through his material, and it was his work that did it. So... He was a profitable, a lot of people liked him, he was a rich man, he had a lot of say, a lot of power, and he made all these idols and these shrines for this false god. But you see, Paul steps into Ephesus, and as Paul steps into Ephesus, obviously in our heads we know exactly what's going to happen. Paul begins to threaten this man's business. He starts to threaten Demetrius, his business, and his ability to make money. The reason being is obvious. It's because many Ephesians now were turning to Christ. And if they're turning to Christ, that means they're leaving their false false worship of Diana behind. And what they're doing with their lives is now they're dedicating themselves now to follow the teachings of Paul and their Messiah that Paul's talking about, which is Jesus Christ. And that becomes a problem to Demetrius. Everyone with me? That's a problem because now that means it's less people that are want his shrines and less people that are going to worship his image. And now he, it, it shrinks um, the, the, his, his economy, his own business, because that's what he was known for in this place of Ephesus. So Demetrius got so upset. He got so uh, messed up that what he did was he started to speak about Paul and his companions that were there in Ephesus. And he started an uproar. He started this massive commotion around Ephesus, which eventually he led all these people into an amphitheater. I mean, this place was slammed. It was filled with people. And his whole agenda was to get thousands of people to fill up the amphitheater and to bring out Paul to the stage and his companions out to the stage. To The end result is to ultimately have them killed before everyone. Here is the man, Paul, that many of you in the stands turn to his God and watch what, I'm, what we're going to do to him and his companions. Now, that was the end result of what he wanted. I want to kill Paul and his companions. And that was his goal. Now, it's interesting because in Acts chapter 19, verse 34, it gives us, it gives us a little snapshot of what was going on 
during that time in the amphitheater. It says that they started shouting and they kept it up for two hours. And they were screaming this, great is Diana of Ephesus, of the, Eph- of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I don't know if they made it to a song. I don't know if they made it to a rhythm. I don't know what they did, you know. But for two hours, they were, they were giving this proclamation of great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they were hailing to this false god. Okay. They were, the, Paul wanted to go to the amphitheater, don't get it wrong. And the brothers were like, Paul, not a good idea. Um, you're going to die possibly. Possibly you're, you're going to die. Not, not good. So it was, it was very extreme. You see, Paul, if you read through Acts 19 going into 20, he eventually escapes this alive. And this was nothing new for Paul. Like Things like this was common in Paul's ministry. I mean, we've read about Paul here a lot. This is common stuff in Paul's life. Can, can you imagine, like, Paul, because of Paul, an amphitheater was slammed, jammed, packed. It was packed. I mean, for the wrong reasons, but, but it was because of what Paul was doing, because of what Christ was doing through Paul. He escapes alive, nothing new to him. And I wrote some things down. I said this, I put, he knew what it was to escape crowds that were out to kill him. Nothing new. He knew what it was to be stoned to death to then be lifted up again. He knew what it was to have close companions and then have them turn on him. Paul knew what it was for churches to love him and, and, and then hear them speaking evil of him and following another's teacher. Paul understood this. Paul, Paul would go to one town. They would love him. Many would be converted. They would honor Paul's teaching and the works and the miracles. And as soon as he traveled, he found out already from them that they're already falling into heresy from another teacher. And Paul's like, what do you mean? Was, do I need to go back and rebuke you in your face? Like Paul understood some of this stuff. It was, nothing, it was nothing new. He understood the burden of ministry. He understood, Paul got it. He writes about it often. But through the burden of ministry, or maybe I should say it this way, within the burden of ministry, there's something that is very special about Paul that many people in ministry forget to highlight about Paul's life is that he always found joy in the burden of ministry. Ministry is done wrong when you, started, when you start losing your joy in it. Because now you're functioning improperly in the ministry that God has entrusted you in. But when you could still find joy in the ministry which is killing you to then resurrecting you. Or is packing up stadiums to then say have them killed. And yet you still find joy in that kind of ministry. I think there's something that you're doing good in the ministry, in the work that God has called you to do and accomplish. Fulfill and finish. And we forget that, you know. Sometimes we have like pastor's meetings and, and pastor's seminars. And everyone talks about the negative things. But we have to always remind pastors, leaders, Christians, everyone that's in the work of Christ, that there is a burden in ministry. But there is also this truth all over Paul's writings. But there is also a receiving and living in a joy in the midst of burden of ministry. 100%. And, and Paul understood this. And why would he always find joy within the burden of ministry? Here's what I wrote down. Because he was ultimately burdened for the church. He understood that when he stood before the people, it was before the people that Christ would call, maybe some of them, maybe all of them, his bride. 
And for Paul, that was severe. That was serious. That was something that he didn't take lightly. It was something that, that Paul did it with reverence, with fear, with awe. And when he stood before a crowd, he recognized that when I'm about to speak, I speak it to his beloved, his bride. And if you ever speak to a man's woman, you want to be careful how you speak to the man's woman as a man because the last thing you want to do is irritate the man of that woman. And the last person he wants to do is irritate the man of this woman, which is none other than Jesus Christ, his Lord. I don't want to irritate God's heart because I'm improperly preaching his gospel to his bride. That's the la- I'll tick some of you off, but I don't, I, we have to be very careful I don't want to tick God's heart off because I'm improperly doing ministry before you. Paul understood that way. Do you get that? Paul figured that out. Paul understood that. Hence the reason why he would write things like he did to Corinth. Let, let me explain to you what I mean. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read verses 8 through 12. Listen closely to Paul's writing. He says this, we are pressed on every side by troubles. Guys, he's talking to the church. We are not crushed though. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Through suffering, Jesus is noticed. Through suffering, Jesus is noticed, Paul saying. Are you suffering? We were just saying that and singing that. And we're all like, yes, maybe you are. Yes, good. That's not nice. Yes, because if you understood the work that you're in, through your suffering is Jesus being displayed. That's what Paul is telling the church of Corinth. He says this, verse 11. Yes, everyone say yes. Yes. But watch what you're saying yes to. Yes. We live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. I mean, yeah, we don't live in the Middle East in the days of Paul or in the days of today even. We live in a very fortunate country. But can you imagine, understand, like, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus. The reason why we live in constant danger of death is because we serve Jesus. And in that, that the life of Jesus will be evident in our die. When you have to die for Jesus, may Christ be evident. That even in life may they see Jesus and in your death. May they see Jesus even more. What is that? What is Paul really saying? Come on, because I'm going to get to something in the last 10 minutes of my message. Whether you live or whether you're dying, what? Whether you live or whether you're dying, what? Make Jesus known. May Jesus be evident. May Jesus be seen through life or through your death. What, what does that mean? This is what Paul's saying. You don't just start the work. But you finish the work. Every single one of us, if we're not taking up whatever your theology is on that, and you die, every single one of us, the day we die, that's the day your work finishes. That's the day your work finishes. But hopefully on that day that your work finishes, you are still in the faith. Because if you're still in the faith, the day that you die, on that day of death, 
there's going to be great testimony of the work, even in death, that you lived out. When you lose that in the race and you come to your death, most people say, man, too bad he didn't finish well. But when you have sons and daughters that they last and then they endure to the end, you could say what? Through life and through death, they were evident that Jesus was their Lord. Yes or no? This is biblical. Okay. So he says, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. Verse 12. So we live in the face of death. But this, this is great. But this has resulted in eternal life for you. There is joy in death. <laughs> Only Paul could articulate this in such a way. We just like, we just um, say what Paul says. <laughs> so, so important because what we're reading here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is he's burdened for the church. Through life, he's burdened for the church or in life and even at the end, in death, he's burdened for God's church. Yes or no? And because of that, he finds joy in the burden of what is even death, even suffering. And, and, and I, feel like, I feel like some of us, man, this is not in there, but maybe this is a revelation just for you. I feel like some of us are not experiencing joy. Some of us are suffering, and we're not experiencing joy in that suffering. And we're not experiencing joy in that suffering. Just because when we go back and we read this, we recognize, oh man, maybe this is why. Because I don't see that my suffering is actually and can actually be used as a work for Jesus Christ. See, if you put everything in its proper perspective, maybe you'll start finding joy in your suffering. And I feel like Paul does a good job in highlighting this. So now what do we do? We have a lot to say. So let's go back to Acts 20. No one knows at this moment in Acts 20, but I want to make sure I, 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 I repeat this over and over. Paul is at the end of his life. They probably thought that Paul would have enough time or, or a certain amount of time left of years or whatever left. Maybe he has about two years left if I'm not mistaken because I know he spent about two years or whatnot over there in Rome before they kill him. So he has about two years left of his life. He's at the end of his life. And when you study Paul, he's not necessarily old. Some believe he could be 58, 59. Some believe he could be anywhere from 58 to 62. He's not old. I don't consider that old. He's not that old. He still has a lot of life in him. And when... when, when here he is, this 58, 59, this six-year-old man, and he's in, he passes by Ephesus, and what he does is he asks to meet with all the elders. With all, maybe you don't understand what elders means. I'll say it this way. With all the leaders of the church of Ephesus, with all the Ephesian leaders, all the Ephesian elders. And what he does is he calls a special meeting, and he says, I want all the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet with me for a special meeting. They all take a journey, and they arrive to where Paul's at. And when they arrive to Paul, here's where we pick up at. We're going to pick up on Acts chapter 20, which your pages are there, and on verse 18. Everyone on verse 18? Verse 18, let's read 19, 20, and 21. Here we go. When they arrived, look what Paul said to them. This is, man, the word. When they arrived, Paul said to them, you know that from the day I set foot here on this land, right? Until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears, a lot of highlighting, I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. 
Verse 20, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. Last verse 21, and I have had one message for the Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles alike. And it's this, here's the one message. It's the necessity of repenting from your sin, turning to God, and having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, let that resonate for a moment. Because I hope that we've already learned throughout these last four weeks, looking into Paul's life, Especially as we read it in Philippians 3. I hope we've learned this. Ready? How Paul was gripped with one passion and with one desire. And his aim was that the churches that he was pastoring or being apostle over would be gripped alike. Be gripped with one passion and with one likeness. With one passion and with one desire. But we've already gone over that in past weeks. So what does he do? He calls all, uh, There's going to be a lot of teaching here. So just follow with me for a moment. He calls all the leaders of the Ephesian church, and as he calls them to him, what is he telling them? What is he calling them to recognize? How is he verbalizing it to them? Well, he says this, I want you to recognize, number one, my endurance in the trials. I've endured. Number two, operating in the Lord's work with humility and with reverence recognize my operating in his work and I've always done it with humility and with reverence. Another thing he says, he says, recognize that I've never kept back from you guys what is true, whether it's been out in the open or in private, out in public or in your homes. I've never shrank back. I've always told you the truth. What else does he say? He says, I want you, man, I need you to remember this. He's talking to the leaders. This is their very own leadership seminar. And he says, I also want you to recognize that I what? Never changed my message. I've been doing this for how long? For how many years? And I've never changed my message. I've never changed my aim. Whether it was to the Jews or to the Greeks. It doesn't matter who I was preaching before. Never changed my message. And the last thing that he tells him, he says this. I remain faithful in always teaching this. Repenting from your sin, turning to God, and continue to have faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I almost feel like he said, after he was done with his discussion, yes or no, and he made them answer. And I think all the leaders of the Ephesus church were like, yeah, dead on, man. Bullseye, you're right. You've done all those things accurately. So let's go into that for a moment. Because that's not even my message. It's still my introduction leading to the message. But, but let's go into, I think it's those five things that I said. Because I believe this, that the Lord's grip on Paul's life was evident on many levels. I don't think that the Lord's grip on your life should be evident just because you got saved and you said a prayer and he wrote his, your name down in the Lamb's book of life and now you're not going to go to hell because you're going to go to heaven one day for the rest of your life. Good for you. That's good for all of us. Amen. We're not going to hell. You accept the salvation. But do you actually think that your life on earth actually ends from a prayer of salvation here? Don't you think now you need to live out with the works of Christ? So, so this is important for us to hear because we don't want to be just a church that gets people saved, but we want to be a church that keeps people saved <laughs> and then have them what? Work out their salvation. Because we can't just say, hey, praise God, 15 people got saved today in service. Right. Where are they next Sunday? Are they still working out their salvation? That's important. That's important to Paul. That's important to Christians, hopefully. I believe that the Lord's grip on your life should not, is not, shall never be the place of just your salvation. Don't ever just stop on salvation. 
Good. Great gift. Praise God for that. But it doesn't end there. That might just be the beginning. Actually, let's just say that is the beginning. So Paul's had a grip of the Lord. The Lord's grip was on Paul's life, and it was evident in many levels. Number one, the first thing that Paul says, hopefully this stuff penetrates and resonates and brings growth into your life. Number one, what is Paul teaching us? Being gripped allowed Paul to demonstrate a life of endurance. Write that down. He not just, did he not say that? He says, since the day I stepped foot into this land, you've seen my life lived out before you, and what? I've endured through many trials. That's what he says. Those are Paul's words. Number one, being gripped allowed Paul to demonstrate a life of endurance. What does that mean for you and I? It means that if God's grip is on us, we are called to live this salvation, this walk, this faith, and we're called to live it with what? Endurance. What does that mean? That it lasts to the what? Yeah, we don't let go of it halfway through a quarter of it in or on the last quarter of the run. We finish the race that have been set before us, the Bible says. Being gripped allowed Paul to demonstrate a life of endurance. That's number one. You see, when many others had quit, Paul started this race with many others. Billy Graham, if you've ever looked into his life, I forgot the guy's names, forgive me. Maybe I shouldn't even mention it because I don't know the guy's names. But he started with three other men. Men more, they say they were more gifted, more powerful, more anointed than Billy Graham. That they, that they would make Billy Graham look like nothing. And it says that at the end, all of those men, they stopped, they backslid, they never kept following the Lord anymore. And Billy Graham, to the end of his life, continued with the same message. Very, very, very similar to Paul. So, so what, who are we talking about today? The three men that started with Billy Graham that were just as much more, even much more anointed than Billy? Or the one who did not just start the race, but he endured and he finished the race? Who are we talking about today? Who are we honoring today? That's, that's the importance of what Paul is talking about. So I, I went through trials, and, and the Ephesians leaders like, yeah, we're like dying because of Jesus. They're burning down our homes. They're killing our children. And he's like, right, you are experiencing trials just like I have experienced trials in my life. But because we're gripped, demonstrate a life of endurance. When many others have quit and had turned to other heretical teachings... He, Paul, endured through pain, through sorrow, through death, through betrayal, through church growth. Amen. Church growth. We all love that. He endured through church growth, but he also endured through church divisions. Paul's ministry wasn't just about church growths. Paul's ministry was about some of those same people that he was walking and planting churches with were stabbing him in the back when he was leaving those towns and calling many to follow them in their teachings. Paul's ministry had a mixture of things. Involved in it. But he remained, he endured through trials. Paul endured because, number one, he was gripped. The only way that you will endure is if you find yourself gripped in his love. In scripture, we read that the Lord, the Lord's steadfast or his faithful love endures for us. That his mercy endures forever. We read those passages, especially all over the Psalms. His steadfast love, his faithful love, his mercy endures for us. What does that mean? It lasts, that word endures, it endures, it remains for us. Think about this. Look what I wrote down here. Think about this. Now, think about that when you th- think, that was written all messed up. <laughs> think about when you think. How, how many times do you think I can write think in a sentence? Here we go. I'll, you know what? Because I am a frail the pray, here it is. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read it the way I wrote it. Think about that when you think you can't outdo his love. Think about that. Because <laughs> I have no idea what I wrote. <laughs> Let that marvel you. Let that be a revelation. 
because I don't know what I wrote. But seriously, think about this. When you think you can outdo his love, or when you think you can outsin his love, there is a love that remains and endures for his creation. Do you understand that God created everything, right? But when he created you, he created the most important thing to him, which is mankind. He put a soul in you. He put a living spirit in you. He actually breathed life into you. You take a deep breath and we take it for granted. But we don't understand that that is actually God putting his mouth over us before. And the only reason we have breath is because he placed his breath in us. We are his special creation out of all created things. How do I know that? Heaven and earth. That means heaven and earth and everything that is in it shall perish and burn away. But not, not us. Not us. So when you, when, when you think you can outdo his love or outsin his love, there is a love that remains and endures for you. Amen? His in, listen to this. His love endures through your darkest, ugliest, sinful nature. Not to leave you there, but to transform you there. That as a new creation and in new birth, you now are gripped with such love that what is witnessed in your life is a consistent outcome of endurance in many trials. Man, I need you to really understand that. I'll say it a little bit slower. That as a new creation and a new birth, you are gripped with such a love that what is witnessed in your and through your life is a consistent outcome of endurance, not just in good, but in many trials. So, so what, what am I going to write down next? It's only obvious to write this. You are not gripped with endurance that causes you to love. Listen, you are not gripped with endurance that causes you to love. Instead, what? You need to be gripped in love which causes you to endure. Many Christians live enduring. Hopefully they can receive such a love. You got it wrong. You're going to live frustrated for the rest of your life. You need to experience his love, and that is the only way you're going to be able to endure. Anyone that has any kind of relationship with anyone else understands that. We, we don't, hopefully I'll just endure with this person then I'll end up loving them. No, it's because you love them that you choose to endure. What do you think Jesus did on the cross? He endured the cross. He endured the pain. He endured the suffering. This is biblical. For the joy that was set before him. He knew that on the other side of this suffering and pain, there is such a love that awaits for me on the other side with the ones that I'm dying for. You endure because you love. Come on, ask yourself this question. Are you gripped? Are you gripped? Which causes you to endure. So the first thing that we learn is what? Read it. Being gripped allowed, allows us to what? That's a life of endurance. Hopefully you're learning. Number two, being gripped Maybe I shouldn't put Paul. Maybe I should put us. Being gripped allows us to demonstrate a life of humility. Did Paul not say that? Let's read it. Paul says what? I have done the Lord's work what? Humbly and with many tears. Being gripped allows us to demonstrate a life of humility. Listen, his deep affection for God allowed him to stay humble when he was experiencing great ministerial successes. 
I have done the Lord's work humbly, yet here we are over 2,000 years later or whatnot, and we're still speaking of Paul's name. We're still teaching Paul's words, and yet he does his work humbly. Maybe that's why the Lord honored his name and honored his work, and we have such a great honor for Paul today. Because in his successes, he says, I've done this stuff humbly. See, humility in his life was never seen as a weakness. It made him stand before kings, yes or no? It made him stand before governors, before rulers, before philosophers of the day, and even common your normal Greek and Jewish folk, normal Greek and Jewish men and women alike. And before each one, he spoke with boldness, never compromising the gospel with his words or with his life, and never compromising because of the audience that he was facing. It remained the same because Paul was humbled by it. I can't change this because this stuff humbles me. Who am I to change that which humbles me and makes me who I am and breaks me down? So Paul, regardless whether he was speaking before King Festus or whether he was speaking before some philosophers on Oropagus or he was speaking to a bunch of Christians in Corinth, he never changed because of humility in his heart. Amen? May we never change because of our successes or because of our failures. May we continue to be humble. A humility. He, he did not need, listen, the praises of man or from the leadership in Jerusalem. A humility that when he spoke, he was willing to share in the same sufferings as Christ, even until death. That's humility. He knew how to enter. He knew how to enter one town and be persecuted there, and then shake the dust off his feet, enter the next town with the joy and message of the Lord Jesus Christ, not basking or being defeated by the last town's rejection. And you say, how does Paul do that? Because he was gripped and he remained humble. It doesn't matter what that town did. God's blessings are new every morning. He walked into the next town knowing that over there they just killed me for Jesus. But hey, over here they might receive revival in Jesus. And he stayed humble. He didn't allow that to defeat him because of his humility in God's work and in God's word going forward. Sometimes I recognize that some of my most frustrating places of ministry is not because it's your fault or the ministry's fault. It's because of my pride. But if I stay humble, I won't look at those defeats and I won't look at those problems. And I'll recognize that I do this for something greater and someone greater. And his name is Jesus. So that when I go to the next obstacle, I'm doing well because I've learned humility over here back then when it didn't go well. So sometimes it's not the problem of sin and depraved. It's just the problem of I need to get humble going over there. I felt like I deserved something over here. And Paul remained humble. Why? Because he was gripped. And being gripped allows us to remain humble. Yes? Number three. I wish I could stay more on that one. Being gripped allows us, like Paul says, to demonstrate a life of reverence. A life of awe. Everyone say awe. And I'm not saying like awe, how cute. I'm saying like awe, like awesome. Like awestruck. A-W-E. Oh. I'm talking about reverence. What does Paul say? He says, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many what? You guys are with me or not? Lost you already? And with many tears. I believe those many tears that, this is important because I was reading and reading and this is what I feel. Maybe you feel differently. This is what I feel. I believe that when Paul says this to his leaders, those many tears that Paul is speaking of, was the many pains and the many sufferings of the ministry as the apostle. I believe that. But I also believe that throughout his life, the tears that he shed were brought from a place of deeper affection. When he says this, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears, I don't for once think that he's only talking about pain and suffering. 
Because when I read Paul's letters and I read through Paul's life, I don't see him necessarily drowning in the pain and the suffering. But I always see him rejoice in the joy of the Lord through the pain and the suffering. So when he says, I've done my work humbly and with many tears, I actually don't want to stress so much that those tears were necessarily due to suffering. I actually want to say that those tears came from a place that through suffering I've learned what it is to live in a place of deep affection. And in deep affection, my tears grow deeper. I believe that. As I read Paul's life. Many of you cry because what you're going through is hard. But how about it starts to switch. And many of you cry because God is so good. Even with what you're going through, which is hard. Come on, man. When I see a parent and come and praise God after their child, because me and my family know someone, their child drowned in the backyard and then they come and they're in front of us packed house and they're standing up there with boldness and they're broken and they're sad and they're devastated but they stand up and say Jesus allowed this for a reason and we're not going to stop but to declare that God is good and they began to preach Jesus in a service and everyone was in tears I said that right there is Jesus evidence of Jesus I mean I can't I can't decipher that 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 comes from a deeper place because they could have turned and cursed God, but instead in their pain and their suffering, their tears, they found a deeper place of affection even through the death of a child. Amen. Like this stuff is real. I want to introduce you to the person. This is real stuff. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've gone through devastating moments in your life. But yet, I think when Paul is doing this, he's not necessarily saying the tears of his pain and his sufferings. It might be a deeper place of tears, of greater awe for the Lord than when he first believed. I think that Paul was crying different in Acts 20 than when he was when he was throwing off a horse on the road of Damascus. I don't believe his tears represented the same thing. Because when he starts saying things like, man, forgive me for being repetitive. But when he says things like, I knew a man that went up to the third heaven. And he starts, like, he's weeping over these things. I mean, Paul, when he got kicked out of the horse on the road to Damascus, didn't get a field trip to, to the throne room. But there was a endurance through Paul's life that he writes later on in his life that he says I know a man and he's speaking about himself that went to the throne room of God and comes back to testify of it only a few have only Ezekiel Isaiah John Paul only a few have gone to the throne room while being on earth you know what that shows me man I'm gonna be very bold that shows me that you could be living on earth and still have access to God's celestial throne room in heaven. If not, Jesus would have not have prayed, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that if we all position and align ourselves right, you might be able to say, I also know a man that got caught up to the third heaven like Paul and Ezekiel and Isaiah and John did. And it is me. I walked in and I saw angels among angels and they were bowing down before the feet of Jesus. And they were singing, holy, holy, holy. And there was a sea of glass and there was amber and jewels and all kinds of rainbow colors standing before me. And there were sounds of thunderings and lightning and smoke filled the air and every and all the columns around me started to tremble. I'm telling you that I too went to the third heaven and I saw the glory of Christ. Why can't we? Why can't we? When that girl, when I went to go visit her on a Sunday and I told you this from one of the first weeks of talking about grip, she looked at me and she looked at some of us and she said, you know, I see Jesus and it's pretty cool. I said, the heck with that. God told me, you grab her hand, you tell her to pray for you. Remember that? I'm coming to pray for this sick girl, but there's no way I'm praying for her. She's praying for me because she sees Jesus, and she's cool with that. 
I want to see Jesus the way you see Jesus. Lay hands on me. And the sick girl that I thought I was assigned to pray for her, God put me there because I was her assignment for her to pray for me. I'm telling you today, God, being gripped allows us to demonstrate a life of awe. And I believe that when Paul's doing this, it's a greater awe of the Lord when he first believed. So I believe that when he tells his leaders, I have done the Lord's work with many tears, he's not just telling them with much pain and much suffering, but also with so much more joy, where I have discovered the face of God, the person of Jesus Christ, that has turned tears of sadness into tears of joy. Paul was gripped, so he lived with joyful, awestruck, reverential tears. How many of you do your tears need to be turned to tears of joy? It is not impossible because it wasn't impossible to Paul and he was a man just like you and I. Amen? Number four, being gripped allows us to demonstrate a life of truth. Oh, man. He says, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, neither publicly or in your homes. Being gripped allows us to demonstrate a life of truth. Paul never shrank back from telling what, what people needed to hear it's not about what he wanted to say, but it's what they, what they needed to hear. Can I say something to you? See, being gripped gave him the understanding and discernment that what he wanted to say may not always be what the Lord wanted to say to them. Let's say it this way. Be careful with what you feel you want to say because it may not always be what the Lord is leading for the people to hear. Paul understood that. Paul understood that with his life. So what, what do I mean? Here's what I mean. Paul learned truth, he knew truth, he discerned truth, and he never kept back from sharing that truth. So he tells the leaders, you know since the day I've stepped foot on this land until now, this is, this is how I've always done the Lord's work. It's always been done in truth, never with another agenda, never with lies, never with, never with falsehood. Always done in truth with what I know God is telling me to say and what God is teaching me to say. You have to remember this. When Paul is teaching, this stuff wasn't written yet. We think, oh, Paul was teaching like the epistles. No, they weren't written yet. When Paul was teaching, he was teaching the new revelations that God was giving him and things that were going hand in hand with the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, you have to understand that. Sometimes like, oh, Paul, how did he? He taught the word of God. No, God was going to birth the New Testament through someone like Paul as well. He learned, he knew, he discerned the truth. He had to make sure he said it right. He was gripped, so he demonstrated truth. How did he demonstrate truth? I want to make sure you understand this. That our lives demonstrate truth, not just in, not just, it's not a truth that is done in weakness. I want you to understand that our lives demonstrate truth through, through boldness. It's done through boldness. It's not just with words, but it's also with actions. We live out a life of boldness in truth. Amen? I think we're on number five, correct? Number five, being gripped allows us to demonstrate, allowed Paul to demonstrate a faithful message. What did Paul say? Here it is. I have had one message for the Jews and the Gentiles. It is what? The necessity of what? Repent from your sins, turn to God, and have faith in Jesus. What does that mean? You go from faith to faith. You continue to grow in your journey of faith. Listen, the root of Paul's message, just like ours, never changes. Everyone say, never changes. Never changes. Listen to this. Depending who he spoke to, he would reason with them accordingly. He would attract his audience with his message, just like Jesus would. He would present it in a way in which the culture understood it. That means if he was talking to farmers, he brought it through a way of farming maybe, just like Jesus would. 
If he brought it through a philosopher's in Mars Hill, Neuropagus, he would have brought it from a very intellectual place. It doesn't mean that he changes it. He just changes the, the way he presents it. There's nothing wrong with that. He would present it in a way in which each culture understood it, but he would vocalize it even at times different to the Greeks than he would even to the Jews at times, but never would Paul change his message. This is so important because especially the scandals and the things that we're living through today. He knew, listen, that he was not superior over the message of God. He knew he was not superior. I want to make sure I say this, and we'll end it right here. We're not ending the message. We'll end this part right here when I say this. Any religion or any faith that teaches that the leader has more weight than the word or that his word surpasses God's word is heresy and will one day be thrown into the fire with every single one of its leaders. And Paul understood this. He knew that he had been appointed by God and by the spiritual leaders as an apostle, that he was still just a messenger with a message from the great king that rules over his life. I have one message. Repent, turn to God and have faith in Jesus. Never did he make his words greater than God's words. We can't do that. He understood that. And any group of religion that teaches that is false. No, the leader of no religion could say this is the new word of God. No, the same word of God is the same yesterday, today, and will be forevermore. You can't just change things so that it could fit your way. So, so we never change the message Never. He says, I have one message. Write this down. We never change the message, but the message should be constantly changing us. We never change the message, but daily, man, it's changing us. How many of you can say amen to that? So now we come to a place, and here it is. Here's my message. The verses in chapter 20, which led me for the last four weeks to speak on Gripped. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. Let me just read the first two for a moment. We just read verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, correct? Now we're going to go to verse 22, and look what Paul says to his leaders. Here's the next thing he tells the leaders from Ephesus. 22 says, and now I am bound by the Spirit. Hallelujah. I am gripped by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, <laughs> except that the Holy Spirit, that which has been gripped me, tells me, that in city after city, that jail and sufferings lie ahead. I don't know what awaits me, but the Holy Spirit which has gripped me shows me that jail and sufferings awaits me. It lies ahead, forgive me. I don't know what awaits me, but I see some stuff that lies ahead. You know that I don't have time to read this, but if you read this, the prophets were brought to Paul and they laid hands on his belt. And they said, just as you are bound through this belt, you will be bound to the tortures and the chains. And, the... and he was like, I'm still going. So, people were brought to him to try to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. But you see, Paul was led through something else. See, his concern wasn't jails. His concern wasn't sufferings. His concern was, I don't know the stuff that awaits me. Oh, yeah, I've been shown that I'm going to suffer and go to jail. But I haven't seen what awaits do you get what Paul's really saying there? There's a glory there. Yeah, I'm going to be tortured. <laughs> but there's a glory that's going to happen. I can't wait to see what awaits me. You're going to be in prison. I know that. The Holy Spirit already revealed that. But what hasn't been shown is the lives are going to be touched. The souls are, I mean, man, Paul, Paul, you're so, blows my brain. Except that the Holy Spirit tells me, city after city, jail and suffering like I had, though I don't know what awaits me, doesn't it feel contradictory? Like, doesn't it feel like he's contradicting himself? I don't know what awaits me, but the Holy Spirit has shown me that 
Jail and sufferings lie ahead. Like, what do you mean by that? Oh, because you thought that I cared about what the physical world was going to do? That's not what I mean. I don't know. Oh, man, you'll get it. So let's stop here for a moment. He says this. I've been bound by the Spirit. Another translation says it this way. I'm constrained by the Spirit. The word there or the phrase there in the Greek may mean this. I've been fastened with chains by the Spirit. I've been fastened with chains. I know exactly what Paul's talking about when he says fastened with chains. And the reason why I know exactly what he's talking about is because Paul says this many times. Many times in the New Testament, he introduces himself in his writings as what? Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul says things like that. And now he's telling his leaders here, I'm bound by the Spirit. I am chained. I am a prisoner. What is he saying? I am a slave. What does chains represent? I am a prisoner. I am a slave to. I am also what? Obedient to. And he could even say, I'm even gripped by this. So we will now see that he's close to the end of his life. And what he has to say about himself at the end of his life is nothing less than amazing to hear. And he starts off by saying things like this. My life has been given for. My life is left for one thing. And he's like, I do, I go, I say what the Spirit leads me to do, go and say. What is he saying? I'm bound, I'm imprisoned, I'm chained in obedience, gripped by the Holy Spirit. I'm going because I'm gripped by him. Many of us haven't gone yet because we're not gripped by him. Many of us haven't arrived yet because we haven't been gripped by him. Paul's going to arrive because he's been gripped. Come on, arrive because you've been gripped. Paul knows what arrival means before arrival. He's like, I know that jails and sufferings. I've arrived because I know what a lifestyle of gripped is. I've been gripped so I get the revelations of what is to come. Can you imagine living with such authority that you could say, I've been so gripped that I could see already what's before me. But man, I haven't seen what awaits in the glory. Paul understood that stuff so gripped that he admits that what has been shown to him city after city, jail, suffering lay ahead. I'm going. I'm gripped by him. I don't know how things may happen, but I do know what lies ahead. My love in this grip will demonstrate an obedience rather than shrinking back with fear. So I'm going to have two questions because eventually this is what I wrap up the service with. Two questions that I want to give you. Number one, what is your life worth? Number two, what do you find that worth in? Because Paul's going to answer that in this verse. This is what made me speak for four weeks on Gripped. Paul is going to end, answer this at the end of his life. Man, in this shock, look what I wrote down because it, it did something to me. And maybe as I read it or as we read it now, it will be the answer to the beginning of our new life. Someone's last words might be the beginning of your life. To start living in worth and finding worth. Look what he says in verse 24. I need every eye on verse 24. Here is the mega verse of all mega verses that I'm sharing the last four weeks. Let's read it together. One, two, three. Well, my life is worth nothing to me. Work. Signed to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Hallelujah. <laughs> but my life is worth nothing to me. Yo, you're 60 and you're still saying, yeah, it's not worth it's worth nothing unless I use it for the finishing work. See, I think we could almost like end here. Pastor Javi did such a good job last Saturday in our leaders seminar speaking about our work in Christ. And he defined it so properly for us. Here's Paul at the end of his life. And he's showing that his life has worth. Listen. 
not because he was successful for setting funds for retirement, not because his close friends and family will be taken care of, not because he traveled the world, not because he got to exile his bucket list, etc., etc. He says, but my life is worth nothing unless I finish the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, he's at the end, but he, but he knows that how he ends is greatly important. Remember what I was sharing in the beginning of the message? He knows that how he ends is greatly important because it will hold much stronger testimony of the Lord's message and the Lord's work through his life. I'm going to be very honest with you. I've been doing this since I was 20 years old. But if I stop now and I die in five years, what was it worth, man? If I don't finish that which I started. I want that my end for people to speak that he finished. Man, he finished what he started. And he understood this at the end of his life. Life will have worth not just in starting the work that is assigned to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, I, and we learned Saturday ago that every single one of you has a specific work assigned to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the person sitting next to you. It's the person you drive home with. It's the person in your house. It's the person that works across the room from you. It's the person that you see every single time you go to the guy. I mean, you have a work that is assigned for you. Trust me. The Lord will reveal it to you. The worthy ones that will wear their crown will be the ones that have endured. I'm going to say that very bold and, very, and I'm going to honor that. The ones who will wear their crowns in eternity will be the ones that have endured. I believe that, no shadow of a doubt. Why do I believe that? In Revelation chapter 3, we read Jesus' words. He says, to the one who has overcome, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne. He's talking about overcomers. Those who endure will sit with me on my throne. Where are you going to sit in heaven? I plan to sit on his throne. Why? Because I want to be more than an overcomer when I stand before him. How? How are you going to do that? Because I'm going to finish the work which has been assigned to me. You with me? We all have, everyone say, I have a work assigned. I have a work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for the finishing, the finishing work that was assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. Come on. What is your life worth? Is it worth enduring and finishing the work assigned to you by the Lord? Is it worth that? What is your work? Is it worth finishing or just have a good time? The Lord, come on. The Lord is really not that serious about his salvation. Can you imagine how cool would it be to end like that? I just fooled all of you. Just kidding. Take a breath. His salvation is not so serious. No. Finish it well. Finish the work assigned to you. It is that serious. Amen. Hallelujah. The, the second question is, what do you find that worth in? What do you find this worth in? Because if you don't find it in Christ... But if you find it in making sure that your account is set up for retirement, making sure that your close friends, your family is taken making sure you travel, making sure the X is in the bucket list, making sure that all these different things that are of nothing and of no, yeah, they're good for the moment, but they're of no eternal value. Because, but if you erase all that stuff and you find it in Christ, in his work, in his love, in greater discoveries in him, you may live your whole life feeling as if your life is worth nothing if you miss the most important thing. That's what Paul is saying here. If I don't find it in Christ, if I don't find it in his work and finishing his work, in his love, in his greater discoveries, I will miss my whole, the whole life of, of finding worth in him. Could this be what Peter meant in John chapter 6? 
In John chapter 6, when he says this in verse 68 and 69, could if he got in the revelation when he says, but Lord, where would we go? No one but you gives us the revelation of eternal life. We are truly convinced that you are the anointed one, the son of the living God, and we believe in you. My worth is in that man. Where you go, I go. What you say, I say. And where you move, I move. Why? Because my worth is in him and in nothing or in no one else set fixed on my beloved. Could that be what Peter was talking about? Yeah? Dialogue? <laughs> what do you think, mother? Come on, may, may our life feel and may our life find better than feeling. But feelings is good because God gives us feelings. Find worth in him. Gripped in worth. All right. Worship team. Let's do this. Look at Psalm 139. The psalmist, David, actually writes this. Man, this is good, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one from the Passion Translation. Psalm 139. You know what? I'm going to cut this in half. I'm going to read 1 through 11. Here it is. It says, David says, Lord, this is important as I end. You know everything there is to know about me. You perceive every movement of my heart and soul. You understand my every thought before it even enters my mind. You are so intimately aware of me, Lord. You read my heart like an open book, and you know all the words I'm about to speak. This is David. Before I even start a sentence, man, come on, really define this. Where's David's worth found that? Before I even start a sentence, you know every step I will take before my journey even begins. You've gone into my future to prepare the way. And in kindness, you follow behind me. He's in front and he is behind. To spare me from the harm of my past. With your hand of love upon my life, you impart a blessing to me. This is just too wonderful, deep, and incomprehensible. Your understanding of me brings me wonder and strength. Where could I go from your spirit? <clears throat> Peter is saying the same thing David is saying here. Where could I run and hide from your face? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the realm of the dead, you're there too. If I fly with wings into the shining dawn, you're there. If I fly into the radiant sunset, you are there waiting. Wherever I go, your hand will guide me. Your strength will empower me. It's impossible to disappear from you or to ask the darkness to hide me. For your presence is everywhere bringing light into my night. My God. I mean, I want to go ahead and just mess with some of your minds. I was blessed this weekend by, by, by an awesome preacher, and he was teaching this, and I said, I'm going to quote, and I'm going to share a little bit of what he said because it, it really spoke to me. Because, you see, his whole word is constantly telling us this. This is the most important part of this message, I say. That he is madly in love with us. He's not madly mad at you, but madly in love with you. And he wants us to respond to it. And what he wants us to, or how he wants us to respond is to also fall madly and deep love with him. This passage, and if we read all of scripture correct, all of scripture is always about, listen, it's always about him declaring his love over us. All of this, it's always about him declaring his love over us. Forgive us for teaching doctrines. That it's always to remind you that you are a sinner saved by grace and that you are a man depraved from birth and all those things. So we live our lives always with the mindset of, number one, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. 
So you constantly aim yourself, the first thought is towards sin. Because that's the doctrine we've learned and that's the doctrine we've been taught. Oh, you are a sinner saved by grace. And that is not necessarily wrong. It's actually 100% truth. But where is the extent of where we finish saying we are a sinner saved by grace? Where do we stop saying that and say, I was a sinner and I'm saved by grace? Where Where does that extent go? Where does it end, better yet said? So this, he was teaching, he said this, we've justified our whole lives by the doctrine that we are sinners saved by grace. And we lived our whole lives that way. When rather, we should live in the doctrine, or better yet, in this truth, that we are actually the righteousness of God in Christ. So we should have been that day, that day, on that moment, we should have been, we should have been a sinner saved by grace. In the moment of a day, we were a sinner saved by grace. But from that point forward, from a sinner saved by grace forward, our mind should now be, but now I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ going forward. That's powerful when, when you wrap your mind. Wait, let me not constantly think about my life as a sinner. But let me constantly think my life as the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And maybe our aim will be, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll start getting closer when we start shooting. Because if we, I read David. And David's life was not perfect. David's life was, um, if he lived today, would he would receive like the death penalty. David's life in his day, he would have been life in prison maybe. David's life in his day would have been called a hypocrite. David's life in his day would have been like, yeah, sure, Christian. Sleeping with his man's wife, getting her pregnant, then having his man killed. He's a Christian. I'm not messing around. That's who David would, I mean, do you think David would have been honored in today's day? But God doesn't honor man the way man honors man. He doesn't see man as man sees man. He looks deeper. He looks deeper than that because of his love for his love. And he saw the heart of David. He saw what made David's heart be. He saw what David cried for. And David being a mess, David being a disaster, says this, Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You perceive every movement of my heart and soul. You understand my every thought before it enters my mind. You're intimately aware of me. You read my heart like an open book. You know all the words I'm about to speak even before I start a sentence. You know every step you've gone into the future, prepare the way. In kindness, you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. With your hand, you love and you uphold me. From the, you, you impart a blessing to me. This is too wonderful and deep and comprehensible. Your understanding of me brings me to wonder and strength. Where could I go from your spirit? Where can I run and hide from your face? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. There too. If I fly from the wings shining to dawn, you're there. If I fly to the radiant sunset, you're there. Wherever I go, your hand guides me. Your strength will empower me. It is impossible to disappear from you or to ask darkness to hide me. Your presence is everywhere, bringing light into my night. David got the revelation. Oh, my God, Lord, you are so in love with me. I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. What's what's your life worth? That's why we, we, we... I've learned that. I've, I've learned that not through my own revelation, but through other man's revelation, right? And we've gone over that here as it was gone over and spoken to me, and I repeat it here. Like we look at, the, remember that? The Samaritan woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the blind man, 
That's what we say about them. The blind man, the adulterous woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. But none of those people are considered that before God. The blind man is actually the what? The man with sight who has a name. The Samaritan woman actually becomes an evangelist in Samaria. She has a name. The adulterous woman goes to sin no more. She's not known as the adulterous. Like when you remember those preachings, when you get to eternity, you're like, oh, look, the adulterous woman. That's not her name. Because God's mad. You think he gave her that title when he's madly in love with her? We do that because we've learned through the doctrine of she's just a sinner saved by grace. But when you understand in heaven, oh, wait, look, there she is. And then you'll be given her new name. She is the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Her name is not the Samaritan woman or the woman caught in adultery or the blind man. But they, are, they have a new name because they are the righteousness of God in Christ. Why? Because he's madly in love with you. Come on, where do you, where do you find your worth? My worth is actually found in his righteousness. In his grip of love. In his grace. What is your life worth? What do you find your worth in? It's got to be in him, fixed on him. Let's finish the passage. Verse 12. There is no such thing as darkness with you. The night to you is as bright as the day. David's still speaking. There's no difference between the two. You form my innermost being, shaping my delicate inside and my intricate outside. You wove them all together in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, for making me so mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It simply amazes me to think about it. How thoroughly you know me, Lord. You even formed me, every bone in my body, when you created me in the secret place. I like that. Lord, I want you to create me in the secret place. Amen. Carefully and skillfully shaping me from nothing to something. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. Before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days you planned for me were already recorded in your book. Every single moment you are thinking of me. Every single moment you are thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh God, your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake every morning, you are still with me. I feel like just reading that part one more time. The grains of sand, your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. That's a lot of desires. Abraham says, I can't even count that. David got the revelation of your desires are more than that. Now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except the Holy Spirit tells me city after city, jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing unless I use it for the finishing work. Lord, I get it that I will never finish this work if I don't find my worth in you. I'm gripped in worth. My life means something. I dare to say this publicly. I am the worthy one of God. Because I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Humbly, we are the worthy ones of God. We are, we are the ones who will overcome and sit on your throne. Unless that happens, then I, Lord, I am unworthy. I have no worth in my life. 
My worth is found in nothing unless I finish the work that has been assigned to me by Jesus Christ. Lord, grip me. Grip me. Grip us forevermore. Come on, stand with me. Hallelujah. Such a good God. You could close your eyes there and you could just meditate on the Lord there. But you know who you are. God just wants you to be gripped. Gripped in, gripped in this truth. Come on, let it transform you. The altar's open if you need it. Let's sing a song if you want. If you need the altar open, it's open. If not, come on, just get lost in his, get lost in your worth. Yeah, that's not bad. I, you could say that because now you understand what worth is. Get lost in your worth. In the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Come on, get lost in your worth. Hopefully your worth is a, is a person, amen? So get lost in your worth. Your worth is him. Your worth is Christ. So let's sing a song. If you need the altar open, the altar is open for you. If you feel you need to be gripped in that. Let's go ahead and sing a song to him before we end. Hallelujah. You're more real than the ground I'm standing on.